All right, let's go ahead and grab a seat. Go ahead and grab that seat wherever you are at, Flourishing Grace. Let's get after it. We're going to get into the Word together this morning, and we are, um, we're beginning a brand new series this morning at Flourishing Grace. Very excited for this, um, and uh, it's, it's a part of a larger kind of series of series. I don't know how you say that. Uh, we're, we have this group of series, um, a plethora of them. On I mean, What are the things that we as a church are pursuing? What are the things that we want to get after? And so we've talked about spiritual formation. We want to be people formed in the image of Jesus. We talked about dependency in prayer. We want, we want to be a dependent people. We, we want dependency to drive us. We want to be people, be people who are not who are not living like the rest of the world, trying to fighting to be independent and I can do it all on my own, man. We want to be people who are on our knees before God and driven by dependency. But we also want to be people who pursue the table, pursue the table. And, and this is going to take a little bit more work this morning, maybe, than some of those other things. We're like, oh, spiritual formation. Yeah, I'm in church. I get that. Uh, prayer, it seems like something we should, that we should do because, again, we're in church. The table? What does that mean? Uh, we're going to be unpacking that over the next few weeks, and I'm going to lay the groundwork for us uh, this morning uh, as we start this brand new series. And so if you are brand new to Flourishing Grace, this is actually a really, really sweet time to be jumping in, uh, to be engaging with us. There's going to be a lot of, I think, helpful things for you, uh, especially if you're brand new to Utah, if you just, if you just moved here. Um, there's going to be some helpful things for you in this series, uh, but I think really for all of us along the way. Um, as we dive into this. And so here's my question. Uh, first, you can pull out your Bibles. Go ahead and open up your Bibles up to Luke 19. Luke 19 is where we're going to be. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's okay. There's a, one, a blue one underneath the seat in front of you in that little rack there. You can reach down there, uh, pull that out. If you're in the front row, they're underneath your seat uh, in, in the front row. It's on page 973 in the blue Bible. If you don't own a Bible, um, you can take that blue one if you want. The cover's probably ripped off because the rack eats them, um, but find one that's, you know, maybe not torn up and take that one. That's our gift to you uh, this morning. Here's my question as you're flipping there. What did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to do? Here at Flourishing Grace, we're passionate about Jesus, and I know you guys know the answer. What did Jesus come to do? Save us. That's right. He came, like, in, in the simplest form... That's it, right? He came to save us. In fact, he says it this way, kind of famously, the Son of Man came to what? Come on, I know you know it. Speak a little bit louder. The Son of Man came to what? The Son of Man came to, serve, to not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's, Jennifer, man, you know your Bible. That's not the one I'm looking for. There's three Son of Man statements, and that's like one that I'm not even going to talk about this morning. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost is what I was looking for. I heard somebody kind of whisper it, but whatever. It is completely <laughs> fine. Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and serve the lost. There's three Son of Man statements in the Gospels. Man, hey, one out of three ain't bad. All right, what's the context of that statement? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Anybody know? Like what's happening? Where do we find that statement? All right, let's go. Let's look at it together. Luke 19, verse 1. Famous statement. And here's the context. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. He's passing through. This is Jesus moving towards Jerusalem. 
where he knows he's going to enter into the city of Jerusalem for the last time. It's where he's going to uh, perform miracles and flip tables, and he's going to end up on a cross, and he's going to raise from the grave. It's coming, but it's not yet. Okay, He's moving towards Jerusalem, but before he does it, he has to pass through Jericho. He passes through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, as chief tax collectors would have been. And he was seeking to see Jesus, who Jesus was. He doesn't know who Jesus is, but he's heard about it. The crowd is forming. He wants to see who Jesus is. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, and we know who they are, you're going to see in a minute, right? They are the, 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 the religious elites of the day. When they saw it, I lost my place. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. A sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it foretold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Who, who is the lost man in the story? It's Zacchaeus. What is Zacchaeus? He's a chief tax collector. Okay, tax collectors in Jesus' day were some of the most hated people in first century Israel. Nobody liked them. They, they were viewed as traitors to the nation, traitors to their neighbors. Nobody wanted to be around them. Nobody wanted to engage with them. Nobody wanted to spend time with them. What they would do is they would sit in their little booths and they would charge you their tax of Rome. But then Rome would allow them to put a little percentage on the top to, to add a little bit to that. And so the way they made the money, the way they became rich, he was a rich man. And all he did was sit around all day long taking other people's money. Like, you would hate that guy. I would hate that guy, right? That's just what, that's what he did. He sat around all day long and he just collected your money. You had to pay the fee or you get in trouble with Rome and he can put a little bit on top. And if not, you get in trouble with Rome, right? It was viewed as this oppressive thing of Rome and, and the, a person in Israel is willing to engage in that, willing to turn their back on Israel. It was viewed as the worst job you could possibly have. And so they were ostracized. They were not allowed to come in and enter into the temple. They weren't allowed to, to engage with the rest of society, right? And so they kept to themselves. We see that the gospels, tax collectors and sinners eating with Tax collectors and sinners, like that's how it worked. They, they weren't, they, no, no rabbi or religious elite is going to invite them in and, and participate with them. And so they would grumble and complain when they saw Jesus doing this. The most hated people in the day were tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. These were the people, as Jesus says, kind of at the end, since he is also a son of Abraham. That statement in first century Israel is a profound statement. Jesus is saying, this man who you say is not like us, he's not worthy to enter into the temple. He's not worthy to, to engage in your religious society. 
he's one of us. He is one of us. It's a validating statement, validating the identity of Zacchaeus. And so here's the question. What did Jesus primarily do with these people? Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, those who were poor and marginalized. What did he do with them? He ate with them. It's what he did. He would eat with them constantly, all the time, inviting them to the table, or actually more often inviting himself to their table, right? Jesus was, didn't have a home. He didn't have a table. So he's like, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. Like, you're rich. Let's do this. Like, let's eat a real meal here, right? My, my disciples are hungry, right? The Son of Man, Jesus, describes himself in Matthew 11. Jesus describes himself and in this way, the Son of Man came, this is another Son of Man statement, it's the third one. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's how he describes himself. And they, again, they being the, the religious elites of the day, they said, they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and yet... Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus describes himself as one who came eating and drinking. What defines me? I just eat and drink all the time. That's what I do. Like I hang out. I sit around tables. I engage in life with people around the table. It's what I do. And people hated him for it. The religious elites of the day hated him for it because he was doing with sinners and tax collectors. He was doing it with prostitutes. Those who were on the far, on the marginalized. And there's something about that. When we think about that, we think, that's awesome. Like, how cool is it that, like, the guy that we follow, the guy that we worship was willing to kind of rebel against society, was willing to welcome in the poor and the marginalized, was willing to welcome in those who were, who were shunned from society, those with special needs or deformities, right, was viewed as their parents' sin had caused that. And so they weren't allowed to engage. Jesus said, no, no, you can sit at my table. Come, come on in. I got a friend. He's a rich tax collector. Just come on in. We'll eat his food. Right? This is what Jesus did. We think that's awesome. But what would it look like in our day? I mean, the reality is it wouldn't be tax collectors. We don't really have tax collectors like Nobody would think twice if I like ate with somebody who worked for the IRS. They'd be like, whatever. You wouldn't think much of that. What does it look like in our day? What if for me in, in my house, every Tuesday was Transgender Tuesday? I had all my trans friends over and we shared a meal together. How would that change the way you view me? Would it? How would my neighbors? Think about me. Good news is I live in South Davis County. I don't have any trans friends. Um, that's a joke, yeah. What if every Wednesday was, was Woke Wednesday and all my Marxist friends came and ate at the table with me and shared their crazy political views? How would you all view me? For some of you, that would excite you. For some of you, you'd be like, yes, yeah, stick it to the man. But for some of you, for a few of us, that would make you really, really uncomfortable. Again, I live in South Davis County. I don't have any woke friends. But um, what if every Friday was like Flat Earth Friday? 
All my flat earth friends, I invited them over to my house and we hung out. I live in South Davis County. I have plenty of flat earth friends, all right? Um, what if that? What if there was that? How would you view me? How would you see me? What would you think? What would my neighbors think? It would make a lot of people really, really uncomfortable. And some of you, I know, some of you would be like, that's the coolest thing ever. But some of you would be like, I don't know about you anymore. There's people in this room that probably wouldn't attend church here anymore if that's how I live my life. That's the reality of it. If I look more like Jesus than Josh, some people really, really wouldn't like it. But this is what Jesus did. And not just him, but his disciples as well. His disciples were marked by this same act, the same thing. The Pharisees would call them out on this. Luke 5, And they said to him, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, the disciples of John, fast often. Oh, they're so holy and reverent. And they offer prayers. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees, fasting and praying. But yours, they eat and drink. Like, that's what those disciples are known as. Like, we think, like, holy, reverent disciples of Jesus. No, no. The disciples of John were known for their deep prayers and their fasting. The disciples of the Pharisees are known for their fasting and their deep prayers. The disciples of Jesus are known for sitting around and having some fun around the table. Like that's what marked them off with people who were not like them. People who were not included in other people's homes and other people's tables. Right? For Jesus, the table is where ministry happens. And this is what I want you to see today. The table is where life and ministry happens. It's where it happens. And he got in a lot of trouble for it. And so did the early church. And so will we. There's another story. I'll give you one more. Jesus sits with another tax collector whose name is Levi, later will be changed to Matthew, one of his disciples. In Luke 5, it reads this way. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. We've preached on that phrase before. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is what's beautiful. Both Zacchaeus and Levi have been rebuked and ostracized and yelled at and corrected for years by the Pharisees, by the, by the Sadducees, by other rabbis, by the religious elites. For years they've been told, you're a sinner, you're broken, like you, what is wrong with you? Why would you be a tax collector? And one meal with Jesus. I'm giving half of everything I want away. Anybody I've defrauded, I'll, I'll, I'll pay it back today. One meal with Jesus transforms their life forever. Matthew becomes a disciple of Jesus, gives his life to the call to come and follow Christ. One meal. Jesus welcomes us around the table because this is where ministry happens. 
And so before we go any farther, I want you to know this. I want you to know this in the depths of who you are. If you came here today thinking, I'm far too jacked up for Jesus. Like, you don't know my story. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what's happening in my life. Your friend dragged you here today. You didn't want to come. Or maybe you're saying, man, I know I need something, but I know I'm also not welcomed. My neighbors don't welcome me in to their religion or their institution or whatever it is. Jesus welcomes you to the table, to the most intimate place in his life. He says, come on, let's go. And he wants to do a work in your life. And he wants to do that work around a table. He did it again and again and again and again. Ministry for him happened around the table. Jesus came seeking and saving the lost. But the way he accomplished this was eating and drinking. The mission was to seek and save the lost. The means was eating and drinking. It's what he did. His strategy was the table. Peter Leinhardt, uh, a Presbyterian theologian, puts it this way, um, and I don't 100% agree with this statement, but I, I like it, and so I'll, I'll tell you why I don't agree with it in a second, but he says this. He says, for Jesus, feast was not just a metaphor for the kingdom. That's true. Je- as Jesus announced the feast of the kingdom, which he talked about a lot, we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks, for he brought it into reality through his own feasting, Unlike many theologians, he did not come preaching in ideology or promoting ideas or teaching moral maxims. He came teaching about the feast of the kingdom, and he came feasting in the kingdom. Jesus did not go around merely talking about eating and drinking. He went around eating and drinking a lot. I love that he adds a lot. I'm like, yeah, it's true. Like, this is what he did a lot. He did a lot of this. It was a way of life for him around the table, eating and drinking with his best friends and those who are so far from him that you can't even begin to imagine how far these people are from him. That's what he did. Now, he did plenty of teaching, plenty of, what does he say, preaching ideology, promoting ideas and teaching moral maxims. He did that, right? I don't agree with that. Like we have the Sermon on the Mount. It's filled with moral maxims and ideology. It's filled with it. It's filled with it. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. But here's what we see. When it comes to those who were in, those who were religious, those who followed him, or, or those who followed the religion of the day, Jesus would stand up and preach to them. He would row the boat out and preach from the boat. But then he would come on shore and he'd feed the 5,000. Eating and drinking. Those who were far, those who were outcasts, those who weren't allowed in, he would say, I want you near to me. The farther you are from him, the nearer he wants you to be to him. The farther you are from him, the nearer he wants you to be to him. He invites those who are far off to become extremely near. The table is where ministry happens. Now, this movement continues within the early church. In Acts 2, 42, this is a famous uh, uh, place where we get a kind of peek in, peek behind the curtain of the early church to see the things that they were doing, right? Many of you guys have heard this uh, passage before. Some of you guys have it memorized. Acts 2, 42 through 47, it reads this way. And they devoted themselves, they being the early church, these men and women, they devoted themselves, what to? To the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
Let's read that again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, spiritual formation. They want to be formed in the way and the image of Jesus. To the fellowship and the breaking of bread, to the table, and the prayers, dependency. The things we've been preaching on, the things we've been walking through, the things we're pursuing is what they devoted their lives to. That's what they devoted their lives to. And all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending, listen, temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Formation, dependency, the table, it's all right there. It's what they devoted their lives to. Now there's some controversy around. I mean, is, is this breaking of bread, is that communion? Is that like the Lord's Supper, the, the sacrament? Is that what's going on? Or is it, is it eating? Is it dinner? Yes. It's both. And we know it's both for various reasons, but right here in the text, breaking the bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. It's not just the communion. It's not just feasting. It's both together. And as we study church history, I'm going to talk more about this in a minute, but as we study church history, we see that for the first 250 to almost 300 years of the church, right, this is how the Lord's Supper communion was done. It was done around a table in homes, as a meal was laid out, the doors were open. People were welcome and come, sit at my table. Let's break bread together. Let's break bread in a special way. Let's remember our Savior who ate and drank with us, who poured out his body and blood for us. Let's participate in this together. Feasting and delighting was a mark, was a part of, was an inseparable part of the Lord's Supper. We'll talk more about that actually next week. I'll talk a little bit more about it in a, in a little bit. But this is, this is how they did life. An everyday act of the early church was corporate worship and meals and homes. It was, it was known as the love feast or the agape feast. The poor, the marginalized, those who couldn't afford meals were welcomed in. People pooled their money together and said, come eat at our table. If you notice in Acts 2, 42 through 47, there's nothing about them sharing their faith or evangelism. And yet, day by day, the Lord added to the number of those who were being saved. Ministry happens around the table. That's what's happening. The spiritual gifts were exercised around the table. Peter talks about it this way, 1 Peter 4, 9 through 10. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Right? Welcome in one another without complaining, without grumbling. Welcome them in as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You have received, if you are in Christ this morning, you have spiritual giftings. There are things that God has gifted you with that are meant to be exercised for the good of others. Where does that happen? How many spiritual gifts are being exercised right now in this room? One. It's me. I'm exercising the gift of teaching as you sit and participate and you listen. And it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. I'm not knocking that. I'm not ripping that. But what I'm trying to get you to see is it's meant to be more. It's meant to be more. 
The gifts that God has given us are meant to be exercised. And when the body comes together, how does that happen? It happens at the table as those who have the gift of hospitality, which is a spiritual gift. It's a spiritual gift. This ability, it's, it's a supernatural ability to say there's always more room at my table. There's always more room to open your doors and say, come on in. This doesn't stress me out at all. It just gives me life. It's not my gift. But I love people who it is their gift. You say, come on in. Like, there's no stress. There's no, like, they delight in just packing their house and packing their table and extending hospitality and thinking creatively about how to be generous with their hospitality. It's a gift. The gift of helps. It's a spiritual gift, right? Those who come early to help those who have the gift of hospitality. Those who, as everybody's reclining around the table and telling stories and laughing and playing games, they're the ones doing the dishes. Not because they feel obligated, not because it's a burden, but because the spirit inside of them is awakening this in them and they delight in it. It's a gift. It's exercised around the table. Um, the spiritual gift of administration, Right? The person who's like, all right, Susie's bringing this. And George, man, that salad you made last time, let's bring that. And uh, uh, hey, Larry, why don't you pack this? And why, like this, it's like it's the, somebody who's, who's organizing it all. Like somebody's like, I'll open my home. I got the gifts of hospitality. I'll help set it up and I'll help clean it up. And then somebody's like, I'll organize everything. And it gives them life. It gives them life to do that. You have people who have the gift of leadership, right? And they're leading the night and they're speaking in the night. People have the gift of exhortation. Saying, hey, remember that time you were late last time? Let me rebuke you. Just kidding. All right. Let's move on. All these different gifts. How dishonoring to our host. Just kidding. Uh, this is how the church advanced. This is how the church grew. There, 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 was no, there was no stage. There was no PA. There was no microphone. There was no celebrity pastor. There was no Instagram. There was no Twitter or TikTok. There was no mass marketing. There was no flyers on the door. There was no ban. There was no competing to see who could cr- produce the kind of the, the sexiest thing on a Sunday morning. It didn't exist. It wasn't there. And yet three centuries later, it's the dominant religion in the world. And Rome is crumbling underneath its weight. From table to table, from home to home, the gospel advanced, the kingdom spread. Because the kingdom is far more about the table than we ever realized. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom, he speaks of eating and drinking with him. The kingdom advances around the table. This is where life and ministry happens. And we know that this movement continued Past the Bible, past the, past, past, after the scriptures closed, the movement continued. The early church, the early church fathers practiced this and they wrote about this. After, after all the apostles die off, right, the, the church fathers continue to write about the agape feast, the love feast. And in fact, it continued to frustrate people. Uh, Tertullian, who was uh, a leader in the church in North Africa, 
And some of the earliest writings that we have outside of the Bible come from Tertullian. And um, he writes about these feasts that would happen on a regular basis in people's homes once a week, one, one day a week, right? So the early church was daily, um, and then and they kind of moved past that. It moved to weekly, and then within 300 years, uh, they were actually outlawed. That's a story for another day. As the church becomes organized, we're like, that's disorganized. We can't do that anymore. It's my gifting, it's not yours. Um, and they outlaw them. But during Tertullian's time, they were being accused. The leaders of the day, the rulers of the day were saying these, this, they, they were uncomfortable with the power that the church was gaining and the way that the church was, was, was gaining members and momentum was building. And they said, we need to shut this down. How are they doing this? How is this growing? And they're like, there's eating and drinking together. I don't know how you shut that down. So they began to accuse them of drunkenness and debauchery and orgies and revelries. They said, this is, that's just all they're doing. It's, you don't need to want to be a part of that. That's all it is. What did they accuse Jesus of? Being a glutton and a drunk. What did they accuse the early church of? The same thing. So Tertullian writes a letter. Here's a part of it. He says this. He describes these feasts. It says, it is an act of religious service. So what's going on here? It permits no vileness or immodesty. The participants before reclining taste first prayer to God. So they, they pray. They open with prayer. As much is eaten as satisfies the cravings of hunger. If you're hungry, you come and you eat. It's not gluttony. We eat until we're full. As much as drunk, drunk as benefits the chase. So you drink until... You don't feel like, never mind. Uh, they say it is enough as those who remember that even during the night, they have to worship God. We are going to worship God all this time. We can't drink too much. We can't eat too much. This is an act of worship. After manual ablution, which is just, they wash their hands and bringing in of lights. There's no electricity, so they light the candles. They bring in the lights. Each is asked to stand forth and sing as he can a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composing. They just go around the table. Be like, who has a hymn for us? Vinny, it's your turn to sing. Stand. Do you want to sing one from the Psalter? You, got, you, have, you compose your own for us this morning. Sing, sing. Like, and they would just go around the table and they would sing together. They would pray and sing, laughing and playing deep into the night, sharing their hearts. As a feast commenced with prayer, so also it closed. We go from it not like troops of mischief doers, nor bands of vagabonds, nor to break into licentious acts, but to have as much care of our modesty and chastity as if it had been a school of virtue rather than a banquet. This is not like a normal meal. We don't leave here drunk, stumbling out, ready to light a couch on fire and flip a car because that's what we do in normal meals. Um, but like, we don't go out here like, to destroy everything and dis disturb our neighbors. We go out as a school of virtue. We go out in peace. We go out to love our neighbors. We see these feasts from the life of Jesus and the saints in Acts 2 through the early church where the poor were fed and the lowly were invited in and served. And home by home, table by table, the church grew. Now, let's fast forward some 1,500 years. How are we doing at this? Here in our culture in the West, here's the reality. 84% of adults in America wish they could share a meal with loved ones more often. 
That's eight and a half out of 10 of your neighbors, eight and a half out of 10 of the people in this room. It's like, gosh, I wish I could just sit around and enjoy a meal with my neighbors more often. That would be amazing. That would be so awesome. Roughly 70% of meals in America are eaten outside of the home. Seven out of 10 meals are eaten outside of our home. And 20% of our meals are eaten in the car. 20% are eaten in the car. We are a system, we are a culture of radical individualism in hurry, right? That's what marks us. Not slow meals around a table intentionally uh, eating with our friends. No, we are individuals and we are busy, right? There was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, when my friends would call me and they'd say, hey, Josh, what are you doing like right now? Like right now? Yeah, yeah, right now. I don't know, just hanging out. Like, hey, we're going to go do this. You want to come with us? That has not happened to me for years, okay, years. In fact, I was with my guys in my path group. I'll pick on them. I asked permission to pick on them. Listen, this week, we were like, hey, we need to get together. And we're like, all right, what, what, what time, when, where? But, and as we look at our schedule, we're like, man, I, I'm, I'm, all, I'm book, all booked up next week. Oh, and I'm booked up the week after. Three weeks out to get three guys in a room together for an hour and a half. That's how we live. It's no longer, what are you doing right now? It's like, hey, can I get on your schedule like three weeks from now? Like, could you, you, got like a, you got a free night? Like, that's how we live. And here's the reality. I'm just going to take it one step farther, okay? We get there three weeks out, and the day before, the person calls, and they're like, hey, um, something came up. <laughs> we waited three weeks for this. What do you mean something came up? Yeah, it was, on, it was on the calendar. I just didn't realize. What do you mean it was on the calendar? No, we were on the calendar. I planned for this. I yell because I've done it, but you've done it to me, so we're even, okay? But this is how we live our lives. We don't value the table. We don't, show, we don't outdo one another in showing hospitality and honor. That's not how we live our lives anymore. And it's deeply affecting us in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. You guys, you guys know this. I don't have to preach on it. Listen, you know this. A few years ago, something happened in 2020. This changed even more for us, even more. Even more, this, this, this devotion to the table was deteriorated, and it hasn't regained itself for most of us. It has not regained. It, it, it's where it needs to be. We're so far from it, and we've never been farther than we have been right now. I don't think there's ever been a time in human history where people are less devoted to the table than they are right now in the Western world. In 2019, my friends and I, uh, we, we put together a thing called Pizza Friday. And every single Friday, and I mean every Friday, 2019, and part of 2018, like we, we gathered in each other's homes and we ate pizza. Like fresh, homemade pizza most of the time, right? Every Friday. It was awesome. It was awesome. And, and like, we always talk about it. Like, that was like the best days ever. But then 2020 comes and we're like, oh, we can't do that anymore because we might all die. And, um, and now we realize that probably wasn't true. But anyways, um, we never brought it back. We've tried. There's been a couple times, a little half-hearted attempts here and there. Hey, can we get Pizza Friday on the calendar? Like, I don't know, like three weeks from now. Would that, would that work for everybody? Is that okay? And then, and then it never really materializes. That's just how it is. And if I'm being honest with you, I'm being completely honest. There's part of me that, like, I don't even know why. It's like, I don't really, I don't know. I don't really feel like it. It's just work. It's effort. And kids are going to be there. And they're going to be yelling. And I don't know. That's not how I was. In 2018, 2019, something has shifted in me. Maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think so. 
I think we've lost something. And my, what I'm trying to do this morning, and I know we're over on time, but what I'm trying to do this morning is just to show you the value of what we've lost. It's more valuable than we think. It's not just friendships. It's not just, hey, let's hang out and, and laugh together. I think that Jesus wants to do something around our tables. I think that Jesus formed a model of ministry that involves the table. And in losing that, and in watching it deteriorate to the greatest extent ever, possibly, in human history, we've lost far more than we realize. And we need to get it back. And so I want to give you three challenges this morning. I think these are actually pretty simple things. Three simple things. For those of you who are sitting here and saying, man, okay, what do we do? What do we do? I'm going to give you three simple things. Okay, first is this. Clear your Sundays. Clear your Sundays. And I know, I already panic. Oh my gosh, no, no, no. Sundays are the day that we prepare for the rest of the week, and i got to get my kids' school stuff ready, and, like, and like, they haven't done any of their homework, and so we got to get that done, and we got to get the house cleaned up, and this is the day that we like, do these things. Man, Sundays used to be the day of Sabbath, where we would prepare all week long for that one day. All week long was in preparation for one day where we would prepare nothing. We would schedule nothing. And it wasn't that long ago, like even in this community, 2019, when I would watch you guys, you'd come in, you'd meet somebody new, or you'd see somebody you haven't seen in a long time, and you'd be like, what are you doing today? Like it's like a Zacchaeus moment. Like people come into the room and they're like, they're seeking Jesus. They're climbing in the tree. They got out of bed on daylight savings. They came in the, through the snow to, to be with Jesus. You're like, hey, let's get around a table this afternoon. Let's get some brunch. Come to my house. Or let's go to a restaurant. I'm buying. I know inflation. Maybe it's just like, come to my house. Let's make some grilled cheese, some canned soup. It'll be fine. Like, it doesn't have to be complex. Clear your Sundays. Make space for those in this room that deeply need community, that need somebody to say, hey, welcome to Flourishing Grace. I don't know what your story is. But I'd love to find out. You want to go get, share a meal together? This is the model of our king. It's how he lived his life. He saw people who were seeking, and he invited them to the table. Let's clear our Sundays. Let's participate in this together. Let's bring that back. Let's re-engage with one another on Sundays in that way. Challenge number two, open your home. Just open your home more often to your neighbors, to the people who immediately live around you. Open your home. Our homes are closed off, right? Our homes are actually built differently today than they were uh, a long time ago. You know this, right? They're built differently. My house was built in 1930-something. I think it was 37. 1930s. When you open my front door, you come up on my porch. I know some of you guys don't know what a porch is. Um, it's a place where you can sit, right? There's, there's a table. There's some chairs. You can sit out there. Right, that little concrete square in front of your house, that's called a stoop, not a porch. There's a difference, okay? I have a porch. It's not that big, but it's a porch. When people come up on my porch and they, I don't have a doorbell, right? I know some of us are like, I can see you on my doorbell camera, and so I don't know you, so I ain't, I ain't gonna open the door. Right? I don't know that guy, right? I don't have a doorbell. My house was built in the 30s. I'm poor. I can't afford a doorbell, all right? This is what it is. When people use the knocker, that was a gift. Uh, people use a knocker, and we open the door. It opens right into our living room. Like, this is where we do life, right? It's like maybe the messiest room in our house. Like, there's like, this is like what it is. My boys are playing, and this is, this is what it is. This is it, right? Most living rooms today are built in the back of the house. 
You have to go down the hallway to get to the back of the house where the living room is. Now, my friends who know me, my neighbors who know me, right, they, they never use the front door, right? Again, we don't have a doorbell. It's weird, okay? They come to the side door. Side door's got windows. They can peek in and see me. And like, hey, what's up, man? Come on in, right? And right into the kitchen. Right into the kitchen, they come on in, right? Second, you want to know what's dirtier than the living room? It's going to be the kitchen, right? And it's like, this is, the where, this is where we do life. We just do life in the kitchen, right? Come on in. Our homes aren't built this way anymore. You have to go back, and the kitchen's in the back of the house. The living room is the back of the house, which extends to the porch, which is large in the backyard that has a privacy fence built up around it. This is how we live our lives. It's going to take effort for you to open your home more often because our homes are not built for that. They're not built for it. Your homes are not built for this. It's going to take effort intentionality for you to open your home more often. In our culture here in Utah, there are many, many would never come into this place on a Sunday morning to hear me preach. After the sermon, you're like, you're darn right they wouldn't. Uh, that would, but it would bring, honestly, it, would bring, it could bring shame upon them. It could bring shame upon them. If the, if, if the wrong person or the right person saw them coming into this place on a Sunday morning, they, they could get in trouble for that. People might believe things that are not true about them. This place is a dangerous place for them. But my table is not. It's not. If I open my home the, and I set my table, the place where ministry happens, what might happen in their lives? The table brought the collapse of the Roman Empire. What might it do here in Davis County? I want you to ask what would happen if we took more seriously the way of Jesus and became a people who prioritized the table. Rosario Butterfield, um, she, was, she was a lesbian professor. Um, and she had to do, she was doing a research project. She had to research uh, people of kind of other ways of life and other faiths. And so she began to engage with a pastor and his wife, a local pastor and his wife. Um, and they invited her into their home. They said, come sit at our table. Every week we have a meal together with all of our friends and we, we pray and we sing hymns and we feast together. We want you to come and experience it. And she started coming. She started coming regularly. Before long, she said, there's something here that is far more beautiful than anything I've ever known. She gave her life to Jesus. She married a wonderful Christian man and she wrote a book on hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And in it, she says this. She says, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality. This is not Martha Stewart. This is not HGTV. It's radically ordinary hospitality. See their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. It belongs to the king. And they open doors. They seek out the unprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. They take biblical theology seriously, as well as Christians, creeds and Christian creeds and confessions. What if we saw our homes and everything in them as not ours, but his? My home, my pantry, my refrigerator, and everything in it belong to the King of Kings. My daily bread is his. It's a gift from his hands. What if our friendships and those who sat around our tables were also his? Gifts for us to steward well. What if we could get back to the way of Jesus, the way that he did life and ministry? 
prioritizing the table every night. Our time of eating our daily bread was done with and for others, not for ourselves. We need to open our homes. The last challenge is this. I want you to bring intentionality to your table. The table is not just a place to hold food, right? Food is not just calories to be consumed for fuel. That's not what it is. The table is us to be a sacred place, a place of intentionality, a place that is used well. What if just once a month, once a month, you practice intentional eating and drinking with your Christian community, right? A, your own agape feast in your house where it's, it's not just like, hey, come over and eat pizza. It's, hey, come over and let's be intentional around this table. Let's do this in a meaningful way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this idea in Life Together. Um, he talk, talked about the, fellow, the table of fellowship of Christians. He said this, he said, Every mealtime fills Christians with gratitude for the living, present Lord and God, Jesus Christ. In their wholehearted joy in all the good gifts of this physical life, acknowledge their Lord as the true giver of all good gifts. And beyond this, as the true gift, the true bread of life itself, and finally as the one who has called them to the banquet of the kingdom of God. Everything in my house, everything in my cupboard, everything in my fridge is his. It's all his. It's all a gift from him. And he is the gift that wants to welcome me to his table. And beyond all of this, all of this, is the one who calls us to the banquet of the kingdom of God. He welcomes us in. How can we not welcome in others? So in a singular way, the daily table fellowship binds the Christians to their Lord and to one another. There's something special that happens around the table. It's a sacred thing when, when, when followers of Jesus gather around the table in an intentional way, in an intentional way, not just to eat, but to experience the power of God. There is a power when Christians break bread together. The king came eating and drinking, and he saved the world. The early church spent their days eating and drinking, and they saw the kingdom advance throughout the known world in their day. And what might happen if we recommitted ourselves to the simple task of eating and drinking? What if you opened your home just once a month to Christian fellowship here at Flourishing Grace and slowly spent time in prayer, enjoying one another's company as a gift from God? What if songs of praise were sung, if you're into that? What if vulnerability was practiced? And with delight and joy and laughter well into the night, who might look in and say, that is unlike any community that I've ever known. Did I want to be part of that? What if life and ministry was done around the table? What if it was done around the table? We want to help you in this. As we pursue the table, we're not just going to tell you to go do it. We're going to help you do it. And my assumption is you fall into one of three categories, okay? One of three categories, Either you are the person who has kind of the gifts of hospitality or the gifts of helps, and you're just like, yes, like I'm in, like I'm opening my house. Who wants to come over today? Like you are so in, I can't even hold you back, right? I can't even help you because you're just so far ahead of me on this. Like if that's you, it's you're like new, you, 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 you're like, I, I don't really have a community here yet, but I'm in. Like I want to give you the opportunity to like raise your hand and to say, I want help. I fill my home. Come on. Like you're new here, but you say, this is my heart, okay? You're new. You say, man, I don't have a lot of friends in this room, but I, I want everybody at my table. You can go to flourishinggrace.org slash 
table, flourishinggrace.org slash table, or you can scan that little QR code on the card that's on your seat, right? You can scan that, right? However you get there, get there. There's a link. You can click it. It's very clear. Option one, I would love to host this in my house at least once a month. I would love to do it. I would love to open my home. I would love to, to, to set the table. I would love to welcome everybody in. This, this fuels me. This gives me life. This gives me energy. I don't, I don't have a lot of friends yet in Utah. I just moved here. I'm new to Flourishing Grace, but I'm in. Like, show me the way. We would love to help you do that. Now, the second group of people, the second person I want to talk to is the people who are like, I'm in. Like, this sounds amazing. Like, I, I, I would love to do this, uh, but I don't really have the gift of hospitality. It's not really my thing, right? Or, or I would love to host people in my home, but I live in a one-room studio apartment with three other guys. Right? I eat in my bed. Like, that's, like I just can't open it. Like, listen. I've been there, right? I just can't have you around my table right now. Like, I'm not in that stage of life right now. Like, this isn't, or this isn't really my giftings right now, okay? Uh, listen, that's okay. There are people in this room who would love to have you around their table. And so I want to give you the opportunity to raise your hand, to say, I'm hungry for this, this intentional community you talk about. I'm hungry to get back to find the way of Jesus around the table, right? I just need a little bit of help. I need somebody who's going to help me host this. Option two, flourishinggrace.org slash table, right? Option number two is for you. Click that. Let us know. Raise your hand. Say, man, I, I want some help finding the table, okay? We want to help you do that. One more category person. One more category person. It's the person who says, Josh, like, the reality is I've been here for a long time. Some of my best friends are in the room. I've known these people for a long time. I already have community. I already have a pretty deep community, but we're not intentional the way you described. Like, we're, we're not practicing vulnerability around the table. Like, that's not, that's not what we're doing. It's not, it's not an intentional time, but we hang out all the time. But I would love to experience a deeper level of vulnerability. At least once a month, I'd love to practice vulnerability. I'd love to practice intentionality around the table. If that's you, you say, I don't need help finding community, but I, I need help increasing the intentionality of my community. We want to help you in that too. That's option number three, flourishinggrace.org slash table, if you haven't memorized that by now. Option three, we just want to resource you. We're not going to tell you what to do. We're not going to be like, you need to be this and that. No, it's like, here's a bunch of resources. Here's some encouragement. I would just love to talk to you about it. I'd love to share more of my passion with you. I know I'm already over. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Okay? Flourishinggrace.org slash table. I'd love to see you guys do that even before you leave here today because you can be like, well, I'll schedule that in later and then you're not going to do it because that's what we do, right? Let's change the way we do life. Let's change the way we do Let's just commit. Let's just commit to being people who take the table seriously. Here's the reality. We've got to get back to this so that we might understand this. Jesus invites us to the table. It's what he does Again and again and again. I hinted at this earlier, alluded to this earlier. But for the first 250 years of the church, communion was practiced at a table full of food. It wasn't the singular thing. Again, in 2020, something happened. And we got these like little tiny, very, very safe sanitary cups. They were like double-sided, brilliant in some ways, but yet completely broken in another way, Okay. And it was like, here you go, I promise I wash my hands, I'm wearing gloves, everything's safe, I promise. For the early church, nothing was safe. Life wasn't safe. The table wasn't safe. 
And Jesus was marked by this. He was marked by constantly doing life and ministry around the table. He says, come and do this in remembrance of me. And he was not, he was not talking about a little plastic, tiny sip of juice and a tiny little cracker saying, la, here you go. That's not it. And I, I know I'm ripping it. I shouldn't rip it, but I am. He was saying this community fellowship, life around the table. I came eating and drinking. Eat and drink in remembrance of me. Get your friends together. Sit around a table. Laugh and pray and sing late into the night. And then you break the bread and you take the wine and you remember that I died to invite you to my table. I died to bring you into the table of the kingdom. It's not an individual thing. It's a communal thing. My body was broken. Break the bread. My blood was shed. Pour the wine so that you might feast with me for all eternity. Now feast. Friends, I want us to take communion this way from now on at Flourishing Grace. I want us to engage around the table together as a community and remember that the table signifies an eternal table an eternal feast at the table of our king and I want us to remember this that he promised us this that every time we do this that he is with us and for the again for the first several hundred years if not even more in the church it was known that every time we gather around the table There's a unique and special presence of Christ. It's been argued for thousands of years. What does that look like? It doesn't matter. There's a unique outpouring of the presence of Christ every time we gather around the table because the table was sacred for him. And when we gather around it intentionally, he gathers with us. And so in a moment, we're going to gather with him and with each other. As Bonhoeffer said, And that quote, so in a singular way, the daily table fellowship binds the Christians to their Lord and to one another. We're going to gather with him and with one another around the table. Now, this table, the table of communion, is for those who say, I want to pursue Jesus. I'm coming to the table to come to him, to be with him. I love him. I delight in him. I cherish him. I long to be at the table for all eternity with him. If that's not true of you, I'd invite you to stay and say, you're free to fellowship with us. But this meal, this portion of the meal is just for those of us who say, I want Jesus more than I want anything in the world. And there's a danger in coming to the table as a hypocrite. We're going to talk about that actually next Sunday. As those who say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, but in in your life you're not practicing anything that Jesus taught you to practice. There's a danger in that, like a real danger. Talk more about that next Sunday. But for those of you who say, man, the way of Jesus is central to my life. That's what I want it to be. This table's for you. And maybe this morning, for the first time ever, you say, I want more of Jesus in my life. I need him. He invites you. Without any conditions at all to come to the table. So that's you. You're invited to come. Surrender your life to him. Come to his table. Take the bread that represents his body that was broken for you. Take the juice that represents his blood that was shed for you. Dip the bread in the juice and share a meal 
with your Savior, with your King, and with his best friends. I'm going to pray. Our hospitality team will come, and they'll bring out some bread for us. And when you're ready, I would love to see us all gather around the table, receive communion, and go back and have a seat. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning. We praise you for being a king who has given his very life to invite us to the table. A king who is constantly saying, come sit with me. Come be with me. Come depend on me. Come delight in me. Come partake in me and with me. And so we come to the table this morning. That's your invitation. And I ask that you would use this to transform something in us. That whatever needs to be changed from the past few years and even the past 1,500 years, that needs to be changed in your church and changed in us, that you would transform it. That you would give us a greater vision of the table, a greater vision of you. And that you would help us to experience a unique fellowship with you and with each other around the table where life and ministry happens. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.